In Hebrews chapter 1, we've looked the last couple of studies at uh, what this book is about. Initially, it was written to a group, there we go, to a group of Hebrew believers in the first century. There was about a 35 to 40 year gap from the time that Jesus rose from the dead, that he resurrected until Jerusalem was utterly destroyed by the Romans in 70. And so it was during this period of time that the, the Jews that had converted to Christianity, these Hebrew Christians, were beginning to come under a certain amount of persecution. There would be a greater persecution coming under Nero uh, at around the time this was written, but that was in Rome, and it would spread through the empire and eventually to Jerusalem, where, uh, as I mentioned, in 70 it would be decimated. But there was a period of time there, while the temple was still up and going, that Hebrew Christians were coming under pressure. The, the longer they walked with the Lord Jesus, the longer they were Christians, the, the more striking the contrast between Judaism and Christianity became in their lives. I mean, think about it. They had grown up under the, the law of Moses. They had grown up doing these national seven national feasts that the, the Jews attended every year. Uh, and they had grown up going to temple and, and sacrificing animals and doing all of these things that Judaism prescribed. And now, in Christ, that was done. Because it was through faith, not through works. It was through grace, by grace, not by the things that they did, but who Jesus is. And when he went to that cross, everything changes. The effect of the law was terminated at that cross. And so now these Hebrew Christians were sort of getting to drift. And we'll look at literally where the writer here in Hebrews talks about that at the beginning of chapter 2. But they were beginning to drift. They were beginning to kind of loosen the moorings because they were not understanding the absolute significance and necessity to stay hooked to Christ, to stay the course, to continue in Christ. And and so by way of application in our lives, there are many things that vie for our affections, that, that come to us, that want to take the first place in our hearts, in our lives. And, and, and we do well to take the admonitions here in this book to guard against that. Again, this was this 35, 40 year period of time, because when the temple was destroyed, there really wasn't any Judaism to go back to. Uh, because uh, up until that point, again, doing the temple ordinances and the sacrifice and all that, that was all going on. And so this writer, during this period of time, is writing to this group of people and saying, look, here's a whole series, and he gives, lays out a series of contrasts, how Jesus is better than the Old Covenant, how Jesus is better, we looked at last week, than the prophets, that he spoke in pieces and parts and portions and ways to the prophets. Uh, to the fathers through the prophets, and yet in these last days is spoken to us in Son, in the position of the Son, the heir of all things. We looked at seven things last week, not going to go back into it again, that the first three verses really cover. We, we, we've been, this is our third study, and we've gone through one sentence in, in this letter. <laughs> and so uh, this morning we're going to hopefully wrap up the chapter and take a look at the angels and, and what angels, the, the, they played a prominent role in Jewish theology. They were the ones who brought the law uh, to the Jews. They, they were the ones who carried the law of Moses uh, and the, the word of God. And they had a prominent place. Some of it was mythological, as it is today. Some of it was real. 
we're going to look at that. We're going to parse through that this morning as well. So they were realizing that there was something different and that they were feeling the need to go and do something legal when that was no longer necessary. Uh, so what we're going to do as we get into this, I'm going to go through all of chapter one. It's only 14 verses. So we're going to read through it and then we're going to come back and we're going to look at some things about angels and then we're going to look at ways that Jesus is actually better than the angels, which is the writer's point in this first chapter. So beginning in chapter one, verse one, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they." One sentence, all of that, uh, it's remarkable to me. There's so much there. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son today, and I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers of flame of fire? But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to the angels, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? And are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for salvation to those who, or to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Excuse me. So all of that, there's a ton there. And if it seems confusing or disconnected or disjointed to you, hang on. We'll work through it and it'll make a lot more sense. The way that this breaks down is really beautiful. This is as, as first century literature goes, as biblical literature goes, this is really, it's beautiful literature. It's, it's, it's very well written. Whoever the writer was in this book of Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrew Christians was very articulate. They understood Greek, Koine Greek, the language of the first century, very, very well. It, it gets a little disconnected when we translate that to English, and it's part of why we want to work through it. But he was, uh, he, he was very well instructed in Judaism, very well instructed, instructed in grace and Christianity, and was really an articulate writer, high Greek in this. Uh, so before we get into the actual text, I want to talk for you for a bit about angels. And we want to look at some things. We're going to break this down into three things. We're going to look at who angels are. And then we're going to look at what angels do. And then we're going to talk about what angels are not. Uh, because there's some things we want to dispel as well here. So uh, I've got a list of things with each. And so we'll work through those as quickly as possible. Because I do want to get into the, the rest of the text this morning. 
As far as who they are goes, angels are an entirely different order of beings than humans. They're not human. They're a completely different order of created beings. They are distinct. There are different kinds of angels. We'll look at that. But they are some, they are beings that God created. The second thing about them is that they are immortal, but they're not eternal. You gotta understand the difference. Like humans, we are immortal, but we're not eternal. What it means is that we have a time, there was a point where we were created, and angels were created at a particular point. And they're created beings. God created the angels as well as he created man. Now they're different from man, we'll get to that, but the point I want to make here is that they're not eternal. They are not, they have not always existed. That we are immortal means that we have a point where we were created, but we have no end is the same with angels. They were created. They have no end. They're immortal, but they're not eternal. Uh, and, and with, with humans, of course, we know that it's all about location. You're going to live forever, whether it's in the presence of God or in the presence of hell itself is something that we choose. And we'll get to that as we go as well. The third thing is that there are different classes of angels. We see in the Bible, we see seraphim. Isaiah 6, I love that passage where uh, Isaiah is taken to the very throne room of God and he sees these beautiful seraphim on both sides of the throne and they're singing back and forth in these, I, I can only imagine the voices that they had. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth is full of his glory. So there are seraphim, there are cherubim. We look at the cherubim, for instance, on the Ark of the Covenant, they were modeled, the angels on the, on the lid, the mercy seat of the Ark, were modeled after angelic beings called cherubim. And we see cherubs show up at, at different places as well. Archangels, in other words, the higher order of angels, we see three that are listed in scriptures. Uh, we see that... And we don't know a lot about all of these, but we do know that Scripture reveals them. There are over 300 mentions of angels in the Bible. I mean, there are only four or five books in the Bible that don't talk about angels to some extent or another. So are they central beings in God's plan? Absolutely. Uh, are they important to us? Absolutely. Uh, how do they operate? We'll look at that as we go. Uh, so... The first thing that we look at as far as how they operate is they're messengers. And uh, they're divine messengers. The, the Greek word is angelos. Uh, and the Hebrew word that corresponds to that is malak. And what it means is messenger. What it means is someone to deliver a message. Uh, they're personal. Angels are personal. They relate. They're relational. Uh, they don't marry. They don't procreate and all of that. But they are personal, relational beings. Uh, they're ministering spirits. This is probably the most comforting aspect of what angels are uh, in our lives, is they are ministering. They are sent forth, and we'll look at that in verse 14 this morning. They're sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. And so they are there to serve man at the behest of God, not at the behest of man. Uh, again, very important that we make those distinctions, because there's a lot of really kind of weird doctrine out there about angels and angelology. Uh, there's a lot of weird stuff. There was in the first century as well. They're usually invisible. They're not always invisible. They've manifested at different times. We look in the pages of Scripture. 
and somehow they're tangible, even though they are purely spirit beings. They're spirit beings, not with a, a physical body, but somehow they're tangible in God's economy, the way he set it up. Uh, not a lot said about that, but we know that they have appeared to different ones down through the ages. They appear at times to humans now, I believe. I've had a couple of encounters that I'm not going to go into in detail, that, that I was left with a very clear belief that I had been visited by angels. Once was when I was tucked underneath the dashboard of a VW bus on a highway after a guy pulled across the highway. And this guy miraculously just appeared. There were six of us inside of this thing. We were all out and injured. And uh, a guy appeared and nobody pulled up. He just appeared and hauled all of our bodies out. And then the person that was there turned around to thank him and he was gone. And the Bible says that we sometimes unknowingly can entertain angels. And so we know that they do manifest physically, but primarily they're in the spirit realm. Another thing about angels is that they're located. And what I mean by that is they're not omnipresent. You look at the attributes of God. God is all present, omnipresent, right? Angels have a specific location. They are bound to a location. They're located. They're not omnipresent. They're not all over. There are angels all over, but different ones. Uh, this is one that I cracked up about. They're numerous. All right. I was in, I was in Revelation 5 as I was preparing for this, and, and I was looking in there where it says that there are 10,000 times 10,000 and then thousands and thousands, right? So I got my, I have my 10 key calculator at my desk, and so I typed in 10,000 times 10,000, and it was like, that went fine. And it was like 100 million. And then I did times 10,000 and it shot up an error. It's the only time my 10 key has ever given me an error. And so I typed it in again. I did it a little differently. Error. So I'm going, lots of angels, right? So anyway, there are myriads of angels. They, there are far more angels than there are humans on the earth. Far more. Uh, as close to countless as you could get, and they are created by God, distinctly uh, individual beings. Another thing about angels is they have highly organized rankings in some way. We, we don't understand, again, how they're organized, but we do know that they're organized. The Bible talks about powers and principalities and authorities in the heavenly realm. And so we know that angels somehow are ranked and somehow they have the, an organization and they carry out their orders through that organizational deal. Again, don't know a lot, but we know enough to see that that exists. Uh, last thing about who angels are uh, is that we see that there are three that are named in the scripture. Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. All three archangels of the highest order. Lucifer, of course, we know as Satan. The, and and he, was the, he was the worship leader in heaven. I, I, when I sit down with our worship team and, and we talk and, and, and we pray together and all, something I always am, am, I feel obligated to remind them of is that this is a, a ministry in our church that will come under attack because Satan hates it when we worship. He was the worship leader in heaven. He fell. He took about a third of the heavenly host with him. And those angels became demonic forces. Again, if the angels are countless, how many demonic forces do we deal with? However, when we look at the word of God, greater is he who is in me, the spirit of God, than he who is in the world. 
And so I don't have to worry about being overwhelmed by demonic forces, but I do know that they exist. I love what, I believe it was Billy Sunday. He was a great evangelist in the 19th century. Uh, he said, you know, I treat, I treat demons like a fly in the room. If he lands, I swat him. Otherwise, I just kind of leave him alone. And I think that that's good advice. We can get so caught up and so uh, obsessed about angels and angelology and, and demons and all of that that we can move away from the purity and simplicity and glory of the gospel. It's a real danger. Angels present a temptation for man to get into uh, an inordinate view of them, to actually begin to worship them. Uh, again, something that we'll look at here in a moment. So that's what I've got down. And you may find other things, and that's fine. This is sort of an ad hoc list, depending on, on or going with what I was looking at in the scripture as I prepared for this morning. Uh, so that's what I'm, I'm looking at as far as who angels are. Now, what angels do, we're going to look at nine things that angels do. The first is they communicate to man the things of God. Remember in Luke, uh, there at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, that the angel appears to Zacharias and says, hey, your wife's going to get pregnant. He says, I'm old. I'm paraphrasing. I'm old. And he says, well, it doesn't matter. She is. And he says, okay, well, great, whatever. And the angel says, you didn't believe me, so you're not going to be able to talk until the baby's born. And that's what came about. And then we see Gabriel. And now that angel is unnamed. And we, we might assume it was Gabriel or it may have been another angel. But uh, then we see Gabriel appearing to Mary and, again, conveying God's plan for her to her. We see uh, an angelic visitation with Joseph when when he is visited in a dream. And, and, and he is told, look. The child she's carrying is the one, and you don't need to worry about it. And, and a goal, all of that is to say that they communicate to man the things of God. They are intermediaries. They're divine messengers. The, the second thing is they watch over the works of God. If you look in the Bible, you see that angels are all over the place in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they're present at the birth of Christ. They're present in the garden when Jesus was praying before he was arrested. They're present at the resurrection of Christ. They're present at the ascension when he is lifted up into heaven. They will be present at the second coming. That's all clear from the scripture. Uh, I, I took a lot of side trips as I was preparing for this and making sure that this information is corrected. They are there every step of the way. The third thing is they're warriors. Uh, they're sent out to do God's bidding. The first thing they usually say is, don't be afraid. Unless, of course, you need to be afraid. Uh, if you look at Egypt with the angel of death, that remember it was an angel that God dispatched to kill the firstborn of every one of the people that didn't have the blood on their doorposts and, and all, and, and including the animals. I mean, powerful, powerful beings. Uh, Elisha's servant, I, I love that, in Second Kings 6, where Elisha and his servant, they're at a town called Dothan uh, in, uh, in northern Israel. And the Assyrian army has come overnight and camped about them. And they're going to just wipe out the city. They look, his servant looks out, his servant, I mean, to use a, a, <laughs> a little more uh, modern vernacular, his servant freaks out. He's like, look at all the army around us. And Elisha prays and he asks God to pull back the veil. Just show him. Uh, so that he can settle down, essentially. And God pulls back the veil for this guy. He looks and he sees chariots of fire, angelic beings surrounding the city, 
far more than would be needed to vanquish the enemy. And, and so they're warriors that are sent out to do God's bidding. They are also warriors that are sent out and yet to come in the book of Revelation, we see angels playing a prominent part in carrying out the wrath of God at the end of the age. Uh, powerful beings again. The fourth thing is they protect God's people. Uh, we look at it and there's not a direct biblical uh, passage that says that we have guardian angels. Uh, that doesn't exist. However, in Matthew 18.10, we read see, Jesus, right, this is set the scene here. Jesus is there with a bunch of people, a crowd of people around, and he sets a child down right in front of him. And he starts talking about harming this little child. It would be better for you if a millstone, 6,000 pound rock, was hung around your neck and you'd be cast into the sea. Then you harm one of these little ones of mine. Well, then he goes on and he says, See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And so there's some things, there's some corresponding thing that has to do with a personal angel that's in the presence of God on my, I don't understand it. We don't understand it. But that's, a, again, we know that they're there. They protect, they're protectors of God's people. We pray for God to set angels about our car at times when we're driving down the road because you keep things from getting in the way. Uh, and, and that's all biblical. It's fine. We, again, again, we don't know specifically about guardian angels, but we do know that angels guard. How's that? The fifth thing is they have the ability to rebel. So we don't see them in scriptures having the same kind of a will as man does because they long to understand salvation. They, 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 they grapple with that. But we do know that they have the ability to rebel. Lucifer was the archangel. Many fell in Satan's rebellion. And that's in Revelation 12.4 talks about the demons, the demonic host. Uh, and, and hell, by the way, was not created for people. Oh, people go. But hell was created to imprison the demonic forces that fell. Uh, that's clear in Matthew 25. Sixth thing here is they're incredibly powerful. One angel could wipe out humanity. Incredibly powerful. And that's why their first words generally to people that they're not to do with is to not be afraid. The seventh thing is that they work only for God. Not man. You can't call down angels, folks. It's just not part of the program. It's not part of what... Now, we can pray to God to send His angels. We can ask Him to do the work, and, and, and He's faithful. But we don't have a direct link with angels in that way. They don't do our bidding. They do His. And they're His beings for Him to do according to His own will uh, in, the, in the entire universe. Not just earth. The eighth thing is that they long to understand the gospel. First Peter talks about that. Angels longing to understand what this, what this thing is. We know that they rejoice when one sinner repents. That's what the Bible tells us. The angels in heaven rejoice. And yet they long to understand what it is that these humans are doing when they understand the fact that Jesus died for their sins and they turn from the old life and they embrace Christ in a new way. And this, this transaction takes place. They don't get that. They're, they already belong to God, unless they, again, they, part of the rebellion. But 
they long to understand the things that you and I can understand. The ninth thing is that they worship. Uh, you look in the Bible and you see very often when angels are there, they are in the presence of God. When they're in the presence of God, they're worshiping. From the seraphim in the throne room in Isaiah 6 to the myriads of angels in Revelation 5 to when Jesus is born, the angels are there on the hillside, they're worshiping. And they're, they're created to worship, to bring glory to God. I can't wait until I'm in heaven and I'm worshiping the Lord in the midst of this scene. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands, myriads upon myriads of angels, all singing in a heavenly chorus to God. I want to look at five things that angels are not. The first is that angels are not purely mythological figures. One of the things that the God of this age has done, uh, referring to the, the enemy, Satan himself, one of the things he has done is, is to get us into a mindset where we look at angels and demons as mythological figures. You know, a demon like the little guy in the little red tights, you know, with the plastic horns and all that. No, 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 no. I mean, the Bible tells us that Satan comes as an angel of light. Beautiful. The most beautiful in all of creation. And, and if we can get into this whole mythological mindset, then we can move away from the truth that God's word puts forth about angels and about demons and about their doings in this realm. Very important that we understand they're not purely... Yeah, there are myths about them, for sure. But that's not the basis of our understanding. They're real. And we do well to understand that that the angels of heaven and demonic forces are real. The second is they're not primarily winged creatures. Now, whenever you think about angels, I typed in angels on Google the other day, and all I got was a whole bunch of either statues or winged cartoons. And, and yes, some are, they're not, but mostly they're not. As I mentioned, they're spirit beings. They don't need wings. <laughs> They kind of move around <laughs> as much as they want. But there are some that are. When we Again, we look at cherubim. You look at the, the Ark of the Covenant, the wings stretch over that, that mercy seat. You look, in, in again, in Isaiah 6 with the seraphim. They have six wings. They don't look like humans in that whole deal. You look at Ezekiel. They don't look like humans. There are some really interesting angelic beings out there. You study the, that out. We're not going to take the time this morning. I'd love to. But you'll find that, man, there, God had some creative juices flowing when he created them. There are some remarkable beings out there, angelic beings that God's created. Not primarily with wings, although the two that we know of, seraphim and cherubim, are winged. The third thing is they're, they're not humans in the afterlife. Uh, there's a lot of talk out there. You know, one of the things that I believe is part of the attraction of angels to the general unbelieving mind, the, the unredeemed or unregenerate mind, is I can get into a spiritual mindset. I can look at the spirituality aspects of things. And when I get into that with angels, I don't have to deal with sin. And the gospel 
you've got to understand the bad news before you understand how good the good news is. You've got to understand your own depravity. You've got to understand the need, absolute need, to turn from sin. Not sins, yeah, sin, but the nature that man has. And in order to, to fully grasp the spiritual, you've got to understand what's taking place in And so, when we look at these, the thing that with humans, oh, well, they've died and now they're going to come back as an angel. That's nonsense. That's not true. And, and it's again, it's tied to mythology. It's tied to uh, a, a, an angelology that doesn't include the cross. And folks, we've got to include the cross. I mean, that's the center of our existence as far as understanding the redemption that was done on our behalf. And I don't have to deal with that if I'm going to talk about little angels and they fly around with little wings and all of that. No. Get rid of the mythological stuff when it comes to this. The fourth thing I want to look at is they're not independent beings who initiate or respond to human interaction and contact. Uh, As I mentioned, you can't just invite angels to come over. Uh, It doesn't work that way. They're there to carry out our Father's orders. Uh, Are they good? Yes, the good ones are good. And they are essentially for our good. They're ministering spirits, ministering to us. But they're not there for us to be able to call into different situations or places or things that are going on. Absolutely, we we call upon the Lord for those things and trust that he's going to do what needs to be done. The fifth thing here, and, and it was a problem in the first century, and it's a problem now, is angels are not underline not to be worshipped. And as spiritual beings, there's an attraction. The Apostle John fell into that. Revelation 19. Uh, and just read this. It says, then, then he said, this is an angel talking to the Apostle John while he's being given the, the revelation, the apocalypse. This is an angel that's talking to him. And he's talking about what's going to happen when believers get to heaven. He's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will be something that Every person that has embraced Jesus as Lord gets to be a part of. And what a glorious celebration that'll be. It'll be when, actually, when Jesus himself girds himself with, with a, 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 an apron and serves us. I mean, it's one of the big events when we first get to heaven. And the angel is telling John about this marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and, and he says, and he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. I can only imagine this angel, and he, a couple of times in, in the book of Revelation, he has to remind John to write. I don't know about you, but I would be so blown away by the things I was experiencing that I would forget to write. And so the angel has to uh, keep writing, John. And so he says, these are faithful and true sayings. Verse 10 in Revelation 19, John says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see to it that you don't do that. John actually gets rebuked by this angel. He says, I'm your fellow servant and one of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. So that's some things about who angels are, what they do, and what they're not. Again, you may be able to add to that list, and that's great. 
But just so that we are kind of grounded in what we're talking about, who we're talking about as we go through uh, Hebrews chapter 1, just to give you a bit of background, that's primarily what that's for. Now, we're going to go back through chapter 1. We're going to break it down into five sections. All right? What we're going to look at is five reasons that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, we're going to, I'm going to break these down. We'll have a slide that comes up whenever we look at a new session. But hopefully by the end of this message, you'll have a pretty good grasp on why the writer wrote what he wrote when he wrote to these Hebrew Christians in the first century. And also, my prayer is, is that your faith will be built up because you see that there's a very clear pattern here to what he's laying out. So without further ado, let's jump in. Verse 1 uh, the first thing we're going to look at is, is that he is the son and angels are not. Uh, actually, we're going to start in verse 4 here. Uh, verses 4 and 5, it says, Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So we look at Jesus here. Is, is the writer is saying that he has a superior status. It's not, yes, he's saying he's gotten a more excellent name, but that is not just saying he's got a better name. It's talking about his status. It's not just the title. Because the name would be indicative. If you remember in in the Bible, names indicate character. They indicate nature. It's saying that he has a more excellent name, a more excellent character and nature than the angels. Verse 5. So for which of, to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, and today I have begotten you? He's quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. Now, the writer here is going to go through seven Old Testament passages. Again, a book of contrast. He's going to contrast these things, and he's going to bounce back and forth. We're not going to get... I welcome you to you know look at the video or the, the podcast or whatever later if you want to get in, because I'm going to move fast, and you're going to lose me if you're trying to take notes on this. So, But the point is, he's going to go through seven passages, and he's going to illustrate from those passages these truths about Jesus being better than the angels. So in Psalm 2, he says, he's quoting there, you're my son, and today I've begotten you. Now, and he says, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now in the second half of verse 5, he's quoting 2 Samuel 7.14. It's the Davidic covenant is what it's called. But that's just a fancy title. But what it is, is where God promised King David that from his lineage, from his ancestral line, Messiah would come. It was a very important point in Israel's history. Okay? And so he's talking about this. He's saying, he didn't say to any of the angels, you're my son. So what he's talking about there, the Jews revered angels. They were known as the intermediaries, as I mentioned, of, of giving the law of Moses. And in Acts chapter 7 and Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament, we see that. And so when he says to which of the angels, he's talking about these people that the Jews knew in the first century had a very prominent role in their theology. But what he's painting the picture of is that, but wait, Jesus is better. Because he didn't talk, God didn't talk to the angels, and he didn't work through the angels the same way as he worked through Jesus. So he says, when he says, you're my son, uh, he never called angels sons. Now, there are some places in the Bible where angels are called sons of God, plural. But nowhere are they called the son of God. Very clear. So 
when he says, today I've begotten you, here in verse 5, it's not the same as created. Remember we looked at immortal versus eternal, okay? Jesus is eternal, and so he was begotten of the Father. What does that mean? What one begets has its nature. So if Jesus being the only begotten Son, we've heard that a lot over the years, if you've been in church much, being the only begotten Son, that means He is the most important. He is the heir. He is the one who carries on the family name. He is the one who owns all the stuff. The only begotten. It's a reference here to His deity, because what one begets inherits its nature. I mean, if I have a child, that child, chances are, is going to look like me. That I remember I would watch my mother sometimes, and, and it was just weird because I would watch her and I would see my grandmother's hand motions. Um, and, and I would just watch her like working in the kitchen, and, and it would be like this weird sense. It's like, man, I feel like I'm looking at my grandmother. But it, it, because my mother was begotten of my, my grandmother, and so she had the family traits. Well, what the writer's saying here is he has the family traits. He's begotten. He's not created. He's eternal. He's God. And so it's a reference to his eternal nature and his deity. Deity being his godness. The second thing we're going to look at in verses 6 and 7 is he's worshipped. Angels are not. Verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, again, there's that concept, the firstborn. Uh, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. The word here for firstborn, the Greek word is prototokos. You don't have to remember that, but what it means is the head of the family. That he's the one. He's the firstborn. We see that that was a very important concept in Judaism, is the firstborn carried on the family lineage. The firstborn was the one who got the stuff. We see the interplay there, like when you look at Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn, but he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. <laughs> Crazy. But, you know, we see that concept of the firstborn being carried out on through Jewish history. And so the writer is appealing to the Jewish mind here, but he's saying, look, Jesus is better because he's saying when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So it doesn't work the other way around. In Colossians, this is, again, angel worship was a problem in the first century. The Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians uh, says this in, in chapter 2. He says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. Again, it's a temptation, folks, to put too much emphasis on angels and not understand their place in the created order of things. Distinct from humans, yes. To be worshipped, absolutely not. Uh, he says that these people who are, are taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. If anybody wants to put forth doctrines of angels, you weigh it by the word of God. And as you do so, you'll find out that it either passes or it fails. And if it doesn't include the cross, and if it's not something that comes after the importance of Christ, chances are it's a doctrine that is worthy of the round file. Verse 7, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? There's, this, there's an interesting wordplay here. He's talking about making his angels wind. He's quoting Psalm 104 here, and Psalm 104 is a psalm that recounts creation. Okay, 
It's a beautiful psalm. And as he quotes this, he's talking about angels being created beings. You don't worship created beings. You cre- you worship God. And so when he says his, his angels wind and his ministers a flame of fire, again, the wordplay there, a flame of fire, they're the seraphim, the word seraph means fiery one. And it, it has to do with these flaming or fiery angelic beings. So he's talking about two types here. And he says, essentially in this, that it doesn't go the direction of worshiping angels. It goes, angels worship him. And he's saying, they essentially, they work for me. That would be like me going into my, I had a guy tell me one time, I took off for a few days. I had a, a couple of businesses years ago. This is free. Um, in, in Northern California. And, and I took off for a few days. I had this guy that I had just hired. And he was just a little bit off. And I'm, I'm being kind here. Um, but I, I couldn't figure out this guy. Well, I came back and he had gotten with another employee and they had decided they were doing a hostile takeover of my business. And I sat down and listened to this guy and, and he says, Ed, we're going to take this over. And he and I, because if you don't do this, we're done and you won't have anybody to carry out the business. And, and, uh, you know, essentially we've got you over. And I, I was, just, I was thunderstruck. I was like, is this guy for real? At first I thought he was goofing off, but he was serious. Anyway, he got all finished, and I just said, oh, I just only have one thing. And he was letting me know that I could have 30%, you know, generous, and, and all that. And, and I just looked at both of them, and I said, oh, I just only have one thing to say about this. And they said, what? They said, you're both fired. <laughs> and he hadn't counted on that because it totally threw him. It was like, I didn't think about that. And Well, that's probably why I own the business and you don't, but... The point is, <laughs> it only goes one direction. And, and I mean, it, some of this stuff is just common sense stuff. Uh, and we do well to just apply common sense to when we're reading in God's word to understand the angels are not there to boss God around. God's the boss. He's saying, they work for me. And that's the order that he's set up. The third thing we're going to look at here is he is called God. Jesus is called God. Angels are not. Okay? Again, the writer, he is systematically taking, he's going through this with this beautiful literature, the way he's laying this out, and he's hopping from one topic to the next to the next as he contrasts Jesus and his importance to the angels. Okay? Uh, really simple, the way this breaks down. When, you, when I first, I remember, I've taught this book several times, and the first time I taught it, it was like, what on earth is being said here i mean this is just lost on me and yet as we as we take it apart as we break it down we see that the writer is making some very powerful and yet very simple points he's called god angels are not and that's in verses 8 through 12 so as we look at this in verse 8 he says but to the son he says your throne O god is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom Quoting Psalm 45. Again, not going to go there. Uh, but he says in verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. What on earth is he saying there? God, your God, speaks of the Father and his position of authority over the second person of the Trinity, the, the Son. Now remember, the Trinity had not been figured out yet. This is happening in the first century. We came to an understanding, and you know, one of the church councils, I think it was Nicaea, I don't remember, uh, talks about how we understand God as manifest in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
we see all three in play here before men kind of put their words to what that was. All right. And so what he's saying when he says, God, your God has anointed you. It speaks of the father's position towards the son. And when he's talking about anointing you, that's a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that the oil of the Holy Spirit, oil and anointing is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit, of his work in a person. And in this case, in Jesus himself. So he's talking about the embodiment of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in this person that is called the Son. So is he called God? Yes, God himself is calling him God. The Father is referring to the Son as God here. Verse 10, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So he's talking about both the earth and the heavens. He's talking about the material realm and the immaterial realm. He's saying that's all the work of your creation. And Psalm 102 again is referenced here. Again, a, a, an account of the creation. It's a retelling of creation there in Psalm 102. And the writer quotes this to let us know that he's called God, that Jesus is called God. Angels are not. So, when we talk about Jesus, when we look at this, at his role in all of this, we're talking about not just the earth, we're talking about the invisible realm as well as the material, and, and in that, that he is over all of it. And the only one that could be over all of it is God. Verse 11, They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. He quotes Isaiah 50 here. And what he's talking about, he's saying the universe is going to wear out. It's going to be like an old pair of jeans. I just think that's interesting. He says it's going to wear out like a, like a garment. Uh, he says in verse 12, like a cloak, you'll fold them up and they will be changed. But you're the same and your years will not fail. God is eternal, is what he's saying. Not the universe. He's saying that all of this, and, and you know, up until a hundred or so years ago, scientists thought that the universe was eternal. And that it was without beginning, it was without end, and all of that. And, and But we know, just through physics, that the universe is expanding, that it has a beginning. They call it the Big Bang. I always ask, well, what was right before that? Um, but, it, it, but it's expanding. It's, it's expanding, and it, and it has a finite end. Uh, but all of this is part of God's creation. And again, the writer is simply saying, when you look at Jesus, you've got to look at the fact that he owns all of it. As we saw earlier in this chapter, he upholds all things by the word of his power, effortlessly, in every dimension, on every level. He holds it together. The only one that could do that is God. And the Jews in the first century, struggling with going back to Judaism, weren't looking at anything like this. Nothing had this kind of power in their lives. And so the writer is he's essentially hitting them with a, a, a one-two punch coming out of the gate to make sure that they understand the superiority of this Jesus in whom they'd believed when they turned their back on Judaism and all of the customs and all of the stuff and came into Christianity. He's saying, compare me and my old genes with God in the universe. He's eternal. This is all going to pass away. And we see further in the New Testament that this will melt with an intense heat and a mighty roar. But God and his kingdom will abide forever. 
What's striking about this is the writer has been going back to these Old Testament passages, and he's here in Psalm 102, and the writer is talking about Yahweh in those. But the person that he's referring to here in Hebrews chapter 1 is Jesus. Understand, the Trinity came later. Uh, This is some marvelous, marvelous literature that really reveals who Jesus is as God. Fourth thing we're going to look at is in verse 13, he is the king of kings. Angels are not. In verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Again, Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the Bible, and it's, it's the most quoted psalm in the book of Hebrews. We will spend time in Psalm 110. It is a powerful, wonderful psalm. The quote that he's making here is talking about Jesus on the throne. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? And we talked about last week, when someone assumed the position of the right hand of the throne of God, they were the one who was not secondary to the king, but in this case, in the case of the father and the son, sitting at the right hand, he's the one who runs the show. He's the one through whom the responsibility falls. We talked about the old saying, the father wills it, the son accomplishes it, and the spirit applies it. And and looking at, again, we don't understand the Godhead, we don't understand the Trinity completely, uh, we never will this side of heaven because it's an infinite concept and we're finite beings, so there's a mystery there, but the writer's giving us enough. He's talking about Yahweh from the Old Testament, he's ascribing the exact same attributes, character and nature, to the person of Jesus. And he's saying he's better than angels. So he's the king of kings. Interesting. There are no seats for the angels in heaven. In reading, when I was sitting, I was looking at when the angel came and talked to Zacharias and told him about John the Baptist being born, to he and his wife Elizabeth and all. Uh, The angel said, I stand in the presence of God. Angels don't sit. Jesus sits. But they don't. Why? Because they're ministering spirits. Uh, they serve and they praise. He's the only one in all of eternity to occupy this place. And it's by the invitation of God the Father. The only one. This wouldn't have been lost on these people. They needed the encouragement that would come because their theology was immersed with angel- angelic stuff. I mean, they had a lot of things that they were dealing with in the first century. All the way, the things that we deal with here. Uh, from worship of angels, this inordinate, weird kind of fantasy thing, to really holding angels in high regard because of the, the role that they played in Judaism. So the fifth and final thing we're going to look at is that he has the power to save, and angels do not. In verse 14, the writer says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Why would the writer put this when he's talking about angels? He wraps up this chapter with this. It seems cryptic, but it's not. True, they're ministering spirits. They're sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. They're ministering spirits. They're not governing spirits. Okay? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is a governing spirit. 
is the one that wants to govern the affairs of our lives, carrying the Father's will out in our lives. Angels are created for service, not dominion. Angels do not have dominion over our lives. The only domain, the dominion that they have is the, the dominion that God has given them. And so when we look at this, something that I think is really interesting, he says, are, there, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? In verse 2, he talks about Jesus as an heir. Heir of all things, remember? In verse 14 here, he's referring to those who belong to Christ as heirs, those who will inherit salvation. That we're heirs, we're co-heirs, we're fellow heirs with him in that sense. Wonderful truths here as we look at this. A couple of things I want to talk about as we wrap up. What does this mean to a believer? I want to recap these real quick. Verses 4 and 5, he's the son and angels are not. 6 and 7, he's worshipped. Angels are not. Verses 8 through 12, he's called God. Angels are not. Verse 13, he's the king of kings. Angels are not. Verse 14, he has the power to save, and angels do not. So what does it mean to me? What does it mean to me as a Christian? One word that comes to mind, confidence. I know in whom I have believed. And I can have confidence that by placing my faith, by placing my life in his hands, by letting the weight of my life down on Jesus, that this is an intelligent faith. You don't have to understand all the, the inner workings of all of this. You don't have to be a theologian. You just simply, ha simply have to have a heart that embraces Jesus as Messiah, to, that embraces him as this being that is not created, but has always existed, that is the one that went to that cross for you and for me, that I can have an intelligent faith and that I can have an informed faith knowing that he's greater than anything that could befall us. He's, and we'll look at this over and over again in this book, guys. We will see, the, and I'm not gonna, again, not going to go into it again, but how many ways Jesus is better than any other system. And yes, he compares it with Judaism here in this book, and we'll look at that as we go. But any other ism, He's better. He's greater. He's reliable. I can have confidence in allowing the weight of my life to rest fully on Jesus, knowing that he is the one with whom I have to do, that my eternal disposition rests in whether or not he's greater than the angels, but it rests in the fact that he's God. Somehow stepping out of eternity into time and then growing up, and doing the work of redemption, purchasing my soul, which is utterly sinful, uh, so that I could have eternity in his presence. That's the confidence that we have as Christians. For the seeker, to know that there is a being that is superior to every other being. To know that his name is Jesus. He is fully God and fully man. That he didn't stay dead when he went to that cross. And that he went to that cross for you. That he went and he hung his life drained out of him so that you could have life. He became sin that you could become the righteousness of God in him. And so for the seeker, 
you can have confidence as well. These are not just religious concepts. These are not just stories. This is real. It's, it's the most real thing in all of the, the, the universe. It's the most real thing that you could ever embrace. Reality is not this. Yeah, it's real in the sense that we live this life and all, but I, I liken this, I liken the, 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 to, to a fishbowl in the middle of a room. And let's say you got a goldfish in that fishbowl and he looks out of that fishbowl and he sees the rest of the room dimly, but he sees it. And it's as though our lives are lived in this physical reality, this physical realm within which we dwell. We live and move and have our being is what uh, Luke says in Acts chapter 17, that this is the physical realm. The real realm is the heavenly realm. And we're, this life is a vapor, the Bible tells us. We are here for an instant. It's there and it's gone. The only decision, the only decision that will count for eternity is a decision for Christ, the living Lord of the universe. Greater than the angels? Absolutely. In every way. Able to work in our lives, able to address the trials that we go through, able to comfort us when our hearts are hurting and heavy? Yeah. He's the one with whom we have to do. If you're a seeker, I would encourage you, turn from the old life. It's a simple prayer. Lord, I know I've lived my life away from you, and I want you in my heart. And and I turn from that old life, that old way of thinking, and I just, I don't know all about it. I don't understand the details, but I know you're touching my heart. And I'm asking you to just come in. Set up your life inside of me. Change me. If that's what you're doing, I want to talk to you afterwards. I really do. Uh, but it's a simple prayer, folks. Um, with that, we're out of time. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this look at Hebrews chapter 1 as we look at your son.